Hello and welcome to another episode of Gilded Age, the podcast where we discuss how and why we're fucked. As always, I'm Walker Bragman. I'm Alex Koch. And today we're talking to Dr. Deepthi Gurdasani, an epidemiologist at the Queen Mary University in London. We're talking to her about the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Gurdasani has been a voice of a continuous voice of caution uh, in the face of optimistic predictions about the direction the pandemic is going. And with cases surging around the world, I have to say that her voice, uh, she seems to have been vindicated. And that is why we're talking to her today to get you the information you need to make decisions in your life uh, about what you will do when you get vaccinated. So stick around, enjoy the interview, and uh, subscribe, like, and share. First of all, thank you again so much for taking the time. Uh, it's a great privilege to have you here. You're one of the few people um, on Twitter who who sort of makes me feel sane. Uh, one of the most reasonable voices, I think, out there. Um, so it's a real privilege to have you. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege to be here. <laughs> so in recent weeks, you've been stressing that COVID is airborne. And I thought we all agreed on that like way long ago, um, but apparently this debate is still going on about aerosol transmission of COVID. Can you explain that debate and why it matters? Yes, I mean, we've known that SARS-CoV-2 is airborne since uh, February, actually, probably, or, or even before then. I mean, since the data came in from Wuhan, it was very, very clear. Um, unfortunately, um, there has been a lot of denialism around aerosol transmission, and it's not just a fringe denialism. It's something that even the WHO has stated. So the WHO has categorically stated that it believes that SARS-CoV-2 is not airborne. And unfortunately, that's had a huge impact on policies to mitigate risk, for example, for healthcare workers, who for a long period of time, many countries who have been left uh, you know, unprotected or underprotected because of this idea that it's not transmitted through aerosol transmission. So very early on, uh, there was this idea that there was only certain processes or procedures that created aerosol transmission with uh, SARS-CoV-2. So for example, if you were uh, a medic and you were intubating somebody, so if you're ventilating somebody or taking their ventilator out um, and they started coughing, then that would spread the virus. Now, of course, what we know is that breathing, talking, create aerosols that have the virus in it, and actually they create far more aerosol than intubating or ventilating somebody or removing the ventilator. But unfortunately, this idea of aerosol generating procedures being these specific processes only that need protection means that you know, most healthcare workers now are still using surgical masks, although they're woefully inadequate with SARS-CoV-2. Um, you know, it's only when people go into those procedures that they're provided with, you know, FFP3, FFP2 masks, where they should be using it throughout. Um, and, um, you know, it's impacted lives all over the world. People are fighting for the basic mitigations they need because of this aerosol spread. I mean, let me just give an example of school policy in many countries. So school policy in many countries, particularly in the UK, is that 
if a child is infected in a classroom, only the people next, the children next to that child need to isolate, which is frankly ridiculous because we know aerosol transmission doesn't work that way. If you're in a poorly ventilated, crowded environment indoors, everybody in that classroom is at risk. So this sort of um, narrative of droplet versus aerosol and denialism of aerosol transmission has real impacts in the real world because public health bodies like the WHO didn't embrace them early on. Uh, and very sadly, you know, you think that this is not a debate, but recently there was a systematic review that was published by scientists who were funded, who were funded by the WHO. Some of them actually have positions within the WHO um, and have uh, and were part of uh, or had links with the Great Barrington Declaration, like Carl, Carl Hennigan, for example. For, for um, everybody listening, the Great Barrington Declaration was a was a letter signed by a bunch of medical types who arguing that we should that the world should adopt. Um, herd immunity as the as the go-to strategy. So obviously, you know, let people get infected and let nature take its course. Just for our listeners, I didn't mean yeah, to interrupt. Sure. You. No, no, exactly. So um, it, it and and this systematic review essentially put doubt and dismissed evidence for aerosol transmission on the basis that this virus has never been cultured in air. Uh, I just want to stress here that measles has never been cultured in air either, but we know it's aerosol transmitted because it's almost impossible to culture viruses from air. The evidence from aerosol transmission is so clear. There are over a thousand super spreading events that cannot be uh, ascribed to any other mode of transmission because nothing explains it. But none of that has been addressed. And recently, many viewers may have watched this. There was a very talked about debate between Kimberly Prather, David Fisman, talking about aerosol transmission against Dr. Conley from the WHO, who not only uh, dismissed evidence for aerosol transmission in many ways, but also suggested that mask use causes a lot of harms like acne and reduces oxygenation in pregnant women. <laughs> and it was quite surprising hearing that come from somebody who's very prominent within the WHO. Of course, it was widely criticized, but one has to wonder why there is this level of denialism about something that there's overwhelming evidence for, which has essentially led to many people losing their lives in the midst of a pandemic. So let's let's talk a little bit more about about uh, about that. There, there have been, uh, I mean, we've seen warning after warning that we need non-pharmaceutical interventions uh, to end the COVID nineteen pandemic, and yet there still seems to be this push that uh, among countries like the United States and um, perhaps the the UK as well that that vaccinations are going to be enough. That that as long as we vaccinate, if we vaccinate people. You know, we can remain open and everything, it'll, it'll sort of normalize and go back to normal. You don't, you don't ascribe to that view. Uh, can you, can you explain that? Sure. I mean, vaccines are hugely important part of controlling the pandemic, but are they going to bring an end to the pandemic themselves in a reasonable amount of time that's going to prevent deaths? Um, uh, you know, if we open up completely, no. Um there's a huge amount of uncertainty with uh, how vaccines might potentially eliminate the pandemic. And, you know, many scientists don't even think that vaccines will be able to do that because the first thing is you need to vaccinate a, a very large proportion of the population to reach what we call the herd immunity threshold. The herd immunity threshold is essentially the proportion of people in a population you need to vaccinate to bring R below one so that the pandemic is shrinking and not growing. Um, and uh, 
It depends on two things, you know, it depends on how transmissible the virus is. And we know this virus is quite transmissible, particularly with the new variants that are even more transmissible than previous variants. It depends on vaccine effectiveness because we know vaccines are not 100% effective in preventing infection and transmission, which is the most important thing when we talk about the herd immunity threshold. Um, and three, the question of uptake. So we know that, for example, in the UK, 21% of the population is currently not eligible for vaccines because we know children, pregnant women, there are many groups that are not eligible and cannot take the vaccine at this point in time. So knowing all of that, there's a lot of uncertainty uh, with uh, even if we vaccinate 100% of the people who are eligible, whether we will be able to reach that threshold. And of course, we don't know the duration of immunity with vaccines. We don't know how effective they are against certain variants. We certainly know that effectiveness is reduced against particular variants. So that creates a lot of uncertainty. And also rollout takes time. And while rollout happens, we have an exponentially growing pandemic. Uh, and like I said, until you reach the herd immunity threshold, easing up of those measures can lead to exponential growth resuming because you don't have that huge impact on transmission that you need. And an example of this is Chile. So Chile is just behind the UK in vaccination. I think it's uh, given at least one dose to 40% of the population. And there was this idea that vaccination is going to end this pandemic and they started easing up. And now they're having a surge in cases and hospitals are overwhelmed with shortages of beds, shortages of oxygen. Um, and that can happen even with high levels of vaccination, which is something that I feel hasn't been sufficiently emphasized in public health messaging, but is critically important. We are dealing with something that grows exponentially and it can easily uh, outstrip the rate of vaccination and cause thousands of deaths if we don't maintain those non-pharmaceutical interventions alongside vaccination. The other reason it's very important to do this is that the best way to push the virus to adapt is to have high levels of transmission alongside vaccination. If you have a population that has high levels of immunity and you have high levels of virus transmitting, that is uh, the maximal selection pressure on the virus to develop mutations that escape vaccination. So if you want to really protect our vaccine resources, which I think are crucial, the best way to protect them is to prevent virus adaptation. And the only way to prevent virus adaptation is to suppress transmission. So um, I, I want to keep talking about the science, but I also just, I kind of have to ask, I mean, what do you, what can you imagine the motivation behind certain World Health Organization officials to kind of deny what I, what sounds like pretty obvious epidemiology and pretty obvious science based on past viruses? Why, why might they be, be doing this and putting millions of people's lives at risk? So I think David Fisman mentioned this in in um, you know his uh, in his debate with Dr. Connolly, which is completely worth watching if your viewers haven't, uh, where he said that early on it's very likely that you know policy wasn't being driven by the evidence, uh, but rather evidence was being driven by policy. So early on there was you know a huge shortage of masks potentially in in regions and PPE for health workers, and I think the idea was or the thinking was the term airborne or aerosol transmission leads to this idea of panic. You know, you start thinking of movies like Contagion where people are, think, oh my God, this virus can be transmitted through the air, that's terrifying. And there was this thinking that it would lead to huge mass shortages and they wouldn't be available for the people who needed it the most, like healthcare workers. And I think a lot of the early thinking was sort of based on capacity rather than science. And, you know, we've seen this narrative, not just an aerosol transmission. For example, in the UK, very early on, we stopped testing. And again, that decision was justified as, you know, testing, contact tracing doesn't impact 
infection. That's how it was fed to the public. But it became very clear that actually they didn't have capacity for testing sufficiently. And that's why it was abandoned. So I think a lot of decisions have been made on capacity, but sold as science very early on. And now, of course, you know, there's much better availability of masks. But um, I feel like because a lot of this you know, rhetoric was put in early on, it's very hard now for scientists to admit or even public health bodies to admit that they were wrong. And I think now to save face, uh, you know, people are talking about semantics around aerosol transmission and embracing it very, very gradually rather than admitting that they got it wrong, which would actually help a lot of people and a lot of countries modify policies to actually protect the people who need protection. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, in the U.S., we we had that too. I mean, we had Anthony Fauci, the the head of our invest, like the, the top in, um, infectious disease expert in the in the federal government, say that initially that masks weren't really important. And I get that your your the the rationale you lay out kind of makes sense. That that that's probably why he did it. I mean, of course he knew that masks would help. Come on, that's ridiculous. I mean, this was this was a month after uh, that interview that you're referring to was on 60 Minutes, and that was a month after Donald Trump told Bob Woodward that this thing is spread in the air. We know that it's spread in the air. It's really dangerous. Like even Donald Trump, Trump knew. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to ju- it's hard to justify telling people not to wear masks or that masks will. I think Fauci even suggested that masks could increase your risk. Yeah, and the problem is we're we're kind of in this this world now where people just believe what they want to believe. And if they heard Fauci say that early of last year, they're just going to stick to that. If they don't want to wear a mask, they're just going to stick to that statement from a long time ago. And I, I totally understand the concern of kind of a panic and everyone goes to the, all the Walmarts and everything and grabs all the masks and there's a short, there's, but there already was a shortage at the, and, and, and you're going to have people who are misinformed. And to me, that would seem, and I, I'm no, I'm no sort of sociologist or epidemiologist or anything, but that would seem down the road to be more harmful when people are misinformed about the, the, the transmission than a temporary. So just, just tell people to put something over their face. Like, I know, I know that it's not, you know, it's not going to really do, do as much as it needs to, but like put a bandana, anything, anything is better than nothing. Right. Am I wrong on this? And, and exactly. I mean, this is the point we're making it, you know, anything is better than nothing. And even poor usage of masks, which people say, oh, but people don't wear them properly. They don't cover their nose. But actually, you know, any usage, however poor, is better than no usage. Yes, ideally, people should be educated, wear it properly, wear the right thing. But even if they don't, it, it helps. And it's not just about masks. I mean, early information about this would have helped people understand why the risk outdoors is far lower than the risk indoors. That's not explained by droplet transmission. It would have helped people understand that, you know, better ventilated places, having with their windows open, moving activities outdoors uh, is good. That social distancing of two meters isn't some sort of magic bullet that's going to prevent transmission and they need additional layers of mitigations. You know, so it, it wasn't just about masks. I think communicating the science around aerosol transmission would have helped mitigate this in so many ways that unfortunately is still not being done in many parts, particularly of the Western world. It was embraced very early on by South Korea, Japan. They got it immediately, but we still haven't. That's an interesting conversation too about that. Um, because I know, I know in some, I uh, think typically in some parts of East Asia, it's, it's customary to wear a mask when you have a cold or when you have a, a, a sort of a minor infection, just, just as sort of a, um, just for the community's sake. And, and that probably translated into people being, have no problem wearing them this time around. But um, let, let's, let's go back to the vaccination. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who are getting vaccinated in, in the U.S. and a, a few other countries. Unfortunately, most of the world, including the global south, 
uh, is deprived of vaccines. So that's another conversation. But, you know, I'm vaccinated. Walker's vaccinated. Um, hopefully you are. We're, 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 oh, you're not. Yeah. Um, we're, Wait, what? <laughs> Sorry. I mean, I'm 39 years old. I don't have any comorbidities, so I'm not in the high risk group. So why would I be vaccinated? I don't know how both of you got vaccinated. Yeah. Well, they opened <laughs> it up for, for everyone in New York state now. Every, all adults can get it. Um, yeah, I know. And we're, I mean, it, that's a, that could be a whole other podcast about how the United States is, is, you know, kind of screwing over the rest of the world with the vaccines. But um, in, in terms of those who are vaccinated, um, I think some people are kind of wondering now, um, you know, what, what can we do? What can't we do? What shouldn't we do? And things like that. Um, you know, the CDC says, the CDC here says that vaccinated folks can hang out inside together. I think the current um, sort of um, recommendation is that, you know, a, a vaccinated person can go into a single home of unvaccinated people or probably vice versa. And they can hang out kind of as kind of one group with another, but not, not, you know, multiple people from multiple homes. Um, the, uh, you know, basically, do you, do you, do you agree with that? Um, and how safe are people who have been, you know, fully vaccinated in general? I don't agree with that largely because there's a lot of uncertainty around this. Um, and it's it's not just the risk to the people who are vaccinated. I mean, obviously, yes. I mean, if you get the infection, you're very unlikely to get severe disease if you've been vaccinated. It's not impossible, but it's rare. But you can certainly get infected. So even with, you know, the regular variant of the virus, you have, uh, you know, a substantial risk that you can still get infected and you can potentially pass it on to others. We don't know what that risk is yet. But of course, with the new variants, we have absolutely no idea. Uh, and, you know, we need to think about vaccine effectiveness as a pyramid. So the first layer of protection is uh, prevention of infection, any infection, asymptomatic, symptomatic. Then there's, you know, whether you prevent transmission. So how high is your virus load? Then there's symptomatic infection. Uh, then there's hospitalization and then there's death. And most vaccines provide very high protection against that last layer. But, you know, when um, you start having all these new variants, the first thing to go, even if you have very high protection against severe disease, the first thing to go is essentially that protection is infection. Um, and that is the real risk, I think, because, yes, you can mix with people. Your risk is probably very low, but you can get infected and you can pass it on to somebody else. And the extent to that risk with many variants is not known. But at the very least, we know that that risk is not I mean, is higher than zero percent, you know. Um, and uh, I think until we understand those risks better, uh, it's a policy that I can't, I don't feel I can support because there is a risk and there's a level of uncertainty, uh, especially in areas of high transmission. So, of course, if levels of transmission are low, uh, if you interact with somebody else, you're less likely to get infected. But if you have a high level of transmission ongoing, I think it can provide that sense of reassurance just because you're protected. Your family members and the other people you interact with may not. So you don't live in a bubble, unfortunately. You know, you live with other people who, uh, and, and we know that, you know, in New York State, as you say, vaccine rollout has been open to everyone here and in many places. It, it depends on whether you've been offered the vaccine or not. And uh, you could be living with people who haven't been offered the vaccine and won't be for months. And, and that's a real possibility. So between vaccinated people, um, I mean, how how much how much uh, caution do you recommend? I mean. I mean, I would recommend the usual measures that everyone's taking. I, I would say, you know, 
don't assume that you're in a better position than anybody else. You you almost definitely are, but you know, use have ventilation, try and meet outdoors, have social distancing, have masks because you need to take the same measures to protect yourself from infection because you can pass it on to somebody else, even though you might not be impacted much. Um, so I've been I've read a couple deferring things about that idea of the virus traveling inside people's noses. Um, I kind of read at first that that was a possibility, then it's probably really unlikely. And then recently I read something about some of the variants uh, allowing more kind of more of the virus to live in, in someone's nose. So I, I assume in that case, you can you cannot be infected and certainly not know it but potentially spread it through the nose. What, what's the deal with all that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We know asymptomatic spread happens with this virus. And I think that's all the more reason why, you know, this, this whole thing about vaccinated people mixing is problem because, um, you know, there is silent spread. You can be asymptomatic, you can pass it on. I mean, that's essentially what happens in children. Um, and, you know, like I said, you don't need to be, you know, there was this earlier thinking, if you're not coughing, if you're not sneezing, you know, you're not putting anyone at risk. If you're not facing somebody and putting them at risk, we know that's not true now. You could be breathing, talking with somebody normally and just pass on the virus. In fact, you don't need 15 minutes of contact. You know, we are hearing from Australia and New Zealand where the virus has been transmitted between people who were not even in the same room. <laughs> so all of that tells you that a lot of our presumed assumptions of, of, about this are incorrect. Um, and particularly with the new variants, we know even less, you know, we know they're more transmissible, but how are they more transmissible? I mean, there's some evidence to suggest they might persist longer, that they might be associated with high-risk high virus loads, but we don't actually know the mechanism by which they transmit faster, but um, they transmit better. But what we are definitely seeing are these instances of transmission of people who are in quarantine in, in very, with very, very limited contact between people uh, for very, very short durations or even no contact spreading through the air uh, between areas that are not connected. And I think that's really, really concerning. And until we understand that better, we really need to stick to all the precautions we have. I mean, there is a reason why uh, like France and Germany moved to recommending N95 masks, even for the public when they were on transportation rather than surgical masks when these new variants arose, because it's much, much better to be cautious. And I think a lot of these things about, you know, you need 15 minute contact with somebody and to be at less than one and a half or two meters to have um, a risk of infection are all completely outdated. We know that spread can happen in, in completely different circumstances. I mean, we're seeing this on flights, right? People sitting very far from each other, not facing each other who get infected during the flight. So, so then let me ask you about schools. Uh, you've been very vocal about school reopenings um, and da dangers associated with, with uh, viral spread in schools. Um, it doesn't sound, from what you're saying, it really doesn't sound like we should be reopening anything at the, at the moment until, until we have a better handle on the, on the spread. Is that I correct? I think the decision about reopening schools definitely depends on the level of background infection in the community and how safe schools have been made. Because, I mean, there's good evidence, for example, from John, John Hopkins University that you can really mitigate that risk, but not with single measures. If you put in multiple measures in schools, like mask wearing, distancing, have small class sizes, potentially adopt hybrid models of teaching with remote learning, better ventilation, then you can mitigate those risks to a large extent. But if you don't have those safety measures in schools, then of course, opening you're opening an indoor environment where children 
who are probably asymptomatic spreaders have huge amount of contacts e with each other um, by a virus that's transmitted through aerosols and infection is going to spread. So I think those decisions depend on safety measures in schools as well. So I think when community transmission is at a moderate or low level, you can open up schools, but you need to have very strict measures in place. I mean, the CDC recommends this. Um, and I think there's a lot more happening about this in the US compared to many other countries in the world. You disagree? No, we, yeah. no, no, it's, it's true. We, we definitely, we, we are, we, you know, Biden, the Biden administration announced on, um, after, after winning the election, that Biden announced that he wanted to reopen schools in his first 100 days, which didn't sound all that doable. Um, and we are currently, I mean, cases in the United States have not, uh, they're not surging at the moment, but they're also higher than they were this time last year. Um, and uh, it, so, you know, how, how safe is it really with, you know, background community spread that, that would seem, it would seem obvious to me that school transmission rates depend on background community spread the same as like in office transmission right. rates probably exactly. depend on background community spread. Yeah. At yeah. the end of the day, it's just another indoor environment. So exactly, I mean, it's, just, it's another super spreader event, isn't it? And super spreader events happen stochastically; they happen randomly, and they're dependent on the rate of transmission. So, much the probability of having this random super spreader event depends on the probability of somebody who's infected coming into contact with people who are susceptible. So, with that in mind, I mean, how do you feel about the three foot? The CDC released a set of guidelines that said, you know, Biden administration, okay, we got this. We'll go along with your your um, your school reopening. They didn't require ventilation as one of their as, as one of their big, uh, you know, things that you have to do in schools. And they reduced the social distancing from six feet to three feet to enable more schools to reopen in states across the country. We've seen outbreaks in schools. Uh, New York to preempt. Uh, that did a passed a, a or a, amended its its threshold for building closures from two cases to four, so that we don't so that we can we can do in person learning. So I guess my question is, how political do you think this has become versus how guided by science? It's not guided by the science. I mean, this is a clear example of uh, you know how um, what is it what you want to do or what you want policy to be or what's practical influences uh, essentially the evidence you put forward. Um, so, you know, I read that study about the three feet versus six feet, and I think so many people have critiqued it. It absolutely doesn't show that there's no difference between three feet and six feet. In fact, it, it suggests that there is a, a, quite a lot of reduction uh, with six feet versus three feet. But the thing is the study is so small that um, there's so much uncertainty around that estimate that people have interpreted as there's no evidence for difference. Although that study was never designed to find a difference. There is no way, even if there was a huge difference, that study wouldn't be able to find it because of the small sample size of the study. And actually the study indicates that it's likely different, but because of the sample size, you can't say there's a difference. So that's not the same as saying there is no difference. What they should have concluded was this study was not designed to assess this appropriately and cannot assess this. It suggests there may be a difference, but we need a much larger size to study it. But, you know, actually, you don't need a study for this because aerosol transmission, aerosol transmission happens beyond three meters. It happens beyond six meters. Yes, the probability of transmission does depend on distance, but certainly three meters is not a safe zone. <laughs> 
particularly in a school environment where there are lots of kids around and it's potentially, you know, poorly ventilated. So I don't think anybody can argue that that's an evidence-based decision. I mean, it's certainly a decision based on possibly practicalities and they should have made that clear, I think, rather than suggesting that it has some sort of a basis in the science. I think one of the people behind the study was uh, Professor Emily Oster, who is an economics professor at Brown University, yes. uh, who has been pushing, uh, very, very, very um, vocally pushing to reopen schools yeah. and to reopen. You know, she she uh, came under fire recently for suggesting that everybody will have a normal summer this summer. You know, start making plans for your summer. So, with that, I, I would like to ask if you were vaccinated. Yeah. I'd just like to run down a list of activities and get your reaction to how safe you would feel doing these activities. Which uh, country? With which variant? <laughs> okay, so 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 let's do let's do uh, two answers. Let's do in the in the U.S. and in the U.K. Okay, in the U.S. So I have no idea what virus I'm exposed to. Fine, yeah. Okay, so so so. <laughs> <laughs> because U.S. surveillance is so poor, there are probably so many. I hear about one mutation reported every day from a different state. So yeah, yeah we have one here. We have a New York. A, <laughs> I got to tell you, variant, it, I think is one of the biggest ones now in the country. I think the U.K. variant um, is pretty dominant. Is it's dominant in New York, I but think. we have a different one yeah. too, or a related one. But I think that the U.K. is is pretty ubiquitous. We're doing here, great um, now. But it, I also yeah. wonder reading yeah, about absolutely. that. I wondered if, if um, I mean, it, is it possible that we actually could have had the same mutation and basically created our version of the UK variant here? So not exactly the same. I mean, that's the thing about mutations because they're not just a few mutations and there are many of them. You can actually trace the pathway. So what we've seen is many different variants have arisen in different parts of the world with the same with the same key mutations arise, but the pathways they've taken are different. And we can trace those pathways because of the other mutations on the background. So yes, it's absolutely plausible. And we know that there are variants within the US that have similar mutations to several of the other variants across the globe, but also some that don't. <laughs> um, and that's essentially just telling you that this virus is adapting and these are adaptive mutations that favor the virus, which is why they keep popping up in many different parts of the world and have evolved independently in the same, towards the same mutations, which we call convergent evolution because the viruses converge onto the same mutations again and again and again, which really tells us that this virus is adapting in a way that's favorable to itself. Just gonna say, it really, really sounds like we are not in control. <laughs> Like, no matter where you are in the world, except with the exception of maybe New Zealand, we are not in control of what is happening. That, that's the thing. The, you know, there's this, I think there's a lot of defeatism in the Western world saying we need to live with the virus. This is inevitable. The fact is we can be in control. You know, yes, the virus adapts. We can't predict how it adapts. But is it adapting in Australia? Is it adapting in New Zealand and Iceland and uh, Vietnam, Thailand? No. China, because they don't have the virus, <laughs> you know. So if you, you know, if you want to deal with uncertainty and risk, each mutation is a huge gamble. So, for example, the new UK variant is now causing the third wave all across Europe. And Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, said this is a new pandemic. And I think that's true. And every new variant is the opportunity for a new pandemic and a new gamble with vaccines. And the best we can do in the face of that uncertainty is reduce it. 
And you can reduce that uncertainty. We have the agency to do that by focusing on elimination efforts, which many countries have done. And that's honestly the only way we have any certainty around a time frame to contain this or vaccines working. Because if you let the virus evolve, nobody can predict what's going to happen next. Anybody who says they can is lying. <laughs> oh, that's absolutely terrifying. So do you, do you think then that why is it terrifying? It means you're in control. Oh, I mean, no, it's terrifying because control. okay, but well, yeah. but 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 you know, you and I are not in control. It it sort of yeah. feels like it sort of feels, and maybe you feel this way too that we're watching, that we see that the tracks are out and screaming. You know, the tracks are out, the tracks are out, and people aren't listening. And in any case, we're we're probably it's probably you know, we're probably going over. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I certainly feel like this all the time. So every single time things are getting out of control or things, you know, we warned about so many things. I mean, I remember even writing articles about variants before these variants started arising, saying this is entirely possible if you follow this sort of policy. And the thing is, when things are going well, people dismiss you as alarmist, fear-mongering, although I don't know how you can call anybody <laughs> alarmist after at least 3 million you know, deaths have occurred across the globe because there was actually cause for alarm. But it's only when things actually get really bad to the point, you know, people aren't getting care in hospitals, by which time it's too late because, you know, we know how this pandemic works. Uh, that's when people start taking it seriously. And I don't know what to do about these cycles because actually, I mean, I've said there's a lot unpredictable about this virus, but there's a lot that's predictable. And so many scientists have predicted it again and again and again. And so many deaths were preventable if you had, if they had listened to scientists and, and acted then. But we find the same patterns again and again. It doesn't seem like governments are learning at all from previous mistakes. And we're hearing the same rhetoric and seeing the same mistakes made again and again. So it does feel like you have, there's no point having scientific expertise here because all predictions, all alarm, uh, all warnings are ignored. And ultimately we're doomed to repeat the same cycle again and again. Uh, and, and not really learn from past mistakes. Well, it kind of feels like business is driving the, you know, the, the, the policy here that we don't want to lock down. It would be bad for the economy. Um, and at the same time, we don't really have, have governments that are willing to sort of float people through a sustained lockdown. How, if we were to lock down, if the, if, if the Europe and the U S were to do coordinated lockdowns, um, how long do you think that lockdown would have to be in order to uh, reduce R below one? So the moment you lock down, you know, R gets reduced below one, depending on the strength of the lockdown. Uh, so R goes below one immediately. What takes time is, of course, cases to come down. And that's a simple mathematical equation. You know, it depends on your R rate and it depends on the cases that you start from. So, you know, if you start from a very high level of cases like we have in our, you know, surges, it can take four to five months for you to reach zero or near zero. If you start with a low level of cases, it can be a very short period of time. It can be four to six weeks. You know, so it depends on the cases you start with um, and how low you can get that R below one. You know, so if it's just 0.9, it'll take longer. If you can get it to 0.6, it'll be quite rapid. Um, but the fact is, it's not indefinite. It's definitely a prescribed period of time that can be predicted really well, actually, um, from, you know, the R rate and, and the, uh, the start of infections. Um, and the thing is, once you get to that point, 
if you have set up good surveillance systems during that time and you've put good quarantine in place, you can then open up fully. So this whole thing about businesses being worried about lockdowns, would you rather have you know, a six week lockdown or would you rather have a six month lockdown and a year of restrictions, which is a situation we've been in the UK. And I think even businesses need to understand that it's much better for them and for the economy to have that defined period of restrictions and then open up fully and people have the confidence to go to shops, to go to, you know, sports events and life returns to normal. Yes, I know travel will suffer, but travel is suffering now because there's so many variants across the globe and all countries need those restrictions in place, not just those who've, uh, you know, embraced zero COVID. And you don't kill your workers. Nice, nice little added benefit there. Don't kill them and they don't get long COVID. I mean, we have over a million people in the UK living with long COVID right now, which is something that's completely ignored. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about long COVID and sort of yeah. what we understand, what we know of it and uh, what protection, if any, vaccines provide against it? Ooh. <laughs> okay, so um, long COVID is essentially when you get acute infection with SARS-CoV-2 but, and you develop symptoms, but uh, the symptoms don't go away. So they remain for a long period of time. So uh, it can be defined as four weeks or five weeks. So the data that's been collected within um, uh, the UK is, is probably the largest data set across the world that they've actually surveyed a general population. So people who get infected, they might have asymptomatic or symptomatic infection. These are people who have mild infection in the community. They're not hospitalized. And what we find is one in five people go on to have symptoms that last for more than for five or more weeks. And um, 13%, uh, so about one in eight, go on to have symptoms for 12 or more weeks. So uh, they estimated that we currently have about 1.1 million people in the UK um, living with long COVID. That's around, uh, you know, between one and 2% of our total population. Uh, 43,000 of those are children, unfortunately. Two thirds of those people, those 1.1 million people are saying that it impacts their day-to-day -day lives. So it's quite significant. Half a million of those people have had symptoms for more than six months. So it's not a disease that goes away quickly. What does it mean in terms of pathology in your future? We don't know. The studies from people who've been hospitalized, who've uh, suffered from long COVID essentially shows that many of them have organ dysfunction. So they have uh, kidney dysfunction, they have heart uh, a scarring on their cardiac tissue. They have lung dysfunction for long periods of time. Uh, and many of them have neurological problems like difficulties in concentration, memory. We don't know what that means. We've seen links, for example, with dementia, with Parkinsonism. Uh, in young children, we are seeing potential increases in type one diabetes that might be linked to this, but we don't know what the link is or if there is any link at all. So there are a lot of worrying things that we are seeing, but we don't fully understand what the underlying issue is. What's very clear is that this is not the flu and the long-term impact can be debilitating. You know, people um, report loss of jobs, um, you know, loss of employment, have had to take sick leave for long periods of time, have had to go part-time, cannot look after themselves, their families, their pets. All of this is being reported and not in small numbers. So this is, I think the pandemic after the pandemic that's being completely ignored because that's the other argument about having NPIs with vaccination because many people think, oh, but we protected our most vulnerable people. We can let this spread through young people because young people don't get affected. Actually, this study from the Office for National Statistics showed that most of the people who get infected are young. 
and most of them did not have any underlying condition. So they're not people with diabetes, hypertension, you know, or people who have some sort of functional disability. These are normal people going out, doing their jobs, who get infected and then can't get out of bed. So, you know, it needs a lot more attention. We need to be focusing more on hospitalizations and deaths, but it's invisible to many people because we don't understand it. And generally in the Western world, I find if there's uncertainty, we essentially dismiss it as, yeah, this is something psychological. This is something, this is pandemic fatigue. It's not real, but it is very real. Just because we don't understand it doesn't mean it doesn't hold a huge risk for our future. This is also a very economically active population. So I'd argue with people who think that controlling the pandemic is separate somehow from economic impact. Now, are vaccines effective against long COVID? So there are no studies on this. Um, essentially, given that there are there is some data that vaccines do prevent infection. So for example, early data from AstraZeneca suggested that protection against asymptomatic infection might be uh, about 67%, at least with previous variants. With B117, it might be lower, but with previous variants, it was 67%. And that suggests that if you don't get infected, then you're not going to get long COVID. So we would expect to have some protection against long COVID, but what that level of protection is, because it might be higher than that, you know, what the level of protection is, to be honest, nobody knows. It's an area that we're actively pushing uh, countries and, and uh, research organizations, public health organizations to investigate. But unfortunately, this is not an area that's being actively researched in many parts of the world because there's been very, very little investment and focus onto it. Wow. Um, well, why don't we wrap up with uh, the series of questions we were going to ask earlier uh, about how would you feel doing various activities uh, in the UK and then in, in the US? <laughs> so uh, I guess the, the first is... If you were uh, vaccinated. If I was Oh, uh, yes. Okay. So if these you are were vaccinated. Two doses. Okay. Yeah. If you're fully vaccinated, good, good call. So how about flying? No. <laughs> no flying. Um, yeah. I personally haven't flown this whole time. I, I honestly probably also wouldn't feel comfortable even now. I just think it's, I don't know why people are, are doing all this flying. I mean, you're, you're in a very enclosed space um, with, with exactly. a bunch of people. Uh, you can't, there's no way to leave. Um, I, that sounds kind of terrifying to me, actually. <laughs> um, okay, how about taking the subway? No. Okay. Um, how about just being outside, outdoors, uh, unmasked, you know, with other, well, I guess if you're vaccinated. With uh, unmasked with other people? Yes. Mm -hmm. I generally wear a mask outdoors. <laughs> I don't know if I would ever, I would stop doing that even if I was vaccinated. I mean, of course, I think it depends on distance. You know, if I was in a park and there was somebody on the other side, I would feel quite happy taking my mask off. I think, you know, if, if I was, though, if I was in a garden with many people gathered together, I think I, I would still want to wear a mask. I don't think I would do that even if I was vaccinated without a mask. Okay. Even if you knew the people were, that you were with were vaccinated? Yes. I mean, if there's a crowd of people in an area, yes. But if they're like on the other side of the road or something, then I'd be comfortable taking off my mask. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a nice ventilated space. The risk is quite minimal to me there. What about um, riding a bicycle? Yeah. Yeah. I would do that. <laughs> Don't see do any that. problem. I would do um, that now. <laughs> yeah, I do it some. I still keep my mask on. But a yeah. lot of people seem to think what that when they're biking or something, it, it, they're like immune from it. 
Um, what do you think about biking without a mask like in a city? I mean, I'd be worried about putting other people at risk because, you know, when you exercise that aerosol uh, thing increases, and especially when you're biking, there's slipstreams as well. And particularly with the new variants, I'd feel uncomfortable, I think, doing any sort of exercise without a mask in, in a jet, even outdoors, but in a crowded environment. If it wasn't, you know, if it was a town road or something and there's nobody around, then I'd feel quite comfortable doing that. Right. Um, so I'm guessing some of these are going to be the same answer uh, as before, but like using a public restroom. Public restroom. I mean, um, I mean, obviously, if I need to use public restroom, I would wear a mask and use it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you kind of kind of don't have a choice, I guess, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then eating indoors in a restaurant. So I think that would depend on the background infection rates for me. You know, I would definitely prefer to eat outside, but if I have to eat inside, um, I think it depends on who else is in the restaurant. You know, I did, for example, last summer go into a restaurant where we were literally the only family there <laughs> and there was nobody else. And we did sit indoors and eat. And at that point in time, infection rates were extremely low here. So I think those circumstances, I might do it. If infection rates were high, I definitely wouldn't take the risk. Our, our other host who's not here with us uh, today, he uh, he and I went and ate at a restaurant and like last summer and immediately regretted it. <laughs> <laughs> immediately we came out we're like god that was it was a very low transmission area but we were still like oh god that was a terrible mistake should never have done it yeah because i mean that's the thing because there are many people around again in an indoor crowded space so you know we went to this golf club restaurant and there was literally on one corner we sat and there was nobody in the entire huge room and there was nobody there <laughs> And we sat and, and ate, you know, and had uh, lunch. But I wouldn't, I don't think I would do it in any other circumstance. And generally, I've, I've done a lot of stuff at restaurants, not a lot, probably a few times, but outdoors. And I feel far more comfortable doing that. Walker, you got any more? Uh, yeah, I got, I, got a I got a couple. So how about taking a taxi? I've had to take a taxi a few times. Um, and if I have to, because, you know, you take a taxi when you don't have a choice. <laughs> But I would still wear a mask and keep the windows open. And that's what I always do to really reduce the risk as far as possible. And then this last one is, is very relevant to me now uh, since I'm, I'm visiting my parents um, and we're all, everybody's fully vaccinated. Would you do that? Would you visit family if everybody were fully vaccinated? Um, okay. I don't know. It depends on whether you live with somebody or they come into or they come into contact with somebody who could who hasn't been vaccinated and is vulnerable. Uh, I mean, essentially, is your risk just infecting each other or is your risk infecting somebody else? Just I each think other. They, they're. they're yeah, I mean, so you're sort of a bubble, I guess, because you don't come into contact with anybody else in the world. <laughs> Sorry, I mean, it's I'm true. Assuming. It's yeah. true, but you know, way to blow my spot here. <laughs> I mean, in that case, I think I would probably be comfortable doing that, um, you know, as long as I'm not putting other people at risk. And also, if I know what the local new variants are and that the vaccines are effective against those variants, because if they're not, then my family could <laughs> potentially get infected and get severe disease. So I think for me, those are the two caveats. You know, do I have certainty about what this virus is there and you know, are they going to come into contact with somebody or am I going to come into contact with somebody? Because otherwise we're, we can form a bubble and, you know, ensure that we stay in that bubble. Well, Dr. Kurdistani, it has been 
an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, I hope that I hope that you'll join us again uh, sometime in the future and, and hopefully under better circumstances. But if not, you know, I'm sure that that we'd love we'd love to have you on to to be like I warned you. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's you know keep keep doing what you're doing, uh, which is spreading information uh, about COVID and trying to, to sort of scream into a void. Uh, it's, it's important. The, the voices like yours are important. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been a real privilege to have you. Thank you. And, and, and same with both of you. And yeah, keep doing what you're doing as well. I do follow you on Twitter and see you tackling all the misinformation out there. <laughs> Couldn't do it yeah, without thanks you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much Thank for coming on. I really appreciate it. <laughs> all right, take care. You too. Take care. Audio editing by Alex Koch. Original theme music by Direwolf. <laughs>